Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, be sure to visit us at cbctaylorville.com. Listen now as Pastor Chad delivers this week's message. Well, I just want to say congratulations to everybody. You made it. It's uh, Spring Forward Day. You're here. You're not late. And if you're at home, I don't want to speak ill of you, but I'm just saying you got caught and we're here and you're not. So there's that. Um, hey, I just want to say it is awesome to be here in this space. And, and you know, I even said this during the rally this morning. It's like I always get nervous on Spring Forward Day or even fall back. I, don't, I never gain an extra hour of sleep during fall back. But I always like perpetually lose an hour of sleep, whether I'm springing or falling or whatever it is. Time change just gets me. Does time change get anybody else? Anyone else? Does anybody else need like an extra cup of coffee on these days just to kind of push through? Yes, thank you very much. Me too. So, hey, but we're here and God is good. Amen? Amen. When is he good? Is he good all the time? He's good all the time. Let's everybody say hallelujah, amen about that truth. Ready? One, two, three. Hallelujah. Amen. All right. That was good. You guys were a little, I'm not, I'm not like one who leads people in singing or those kinds of things. We're working on that. We'll get to it. I'll talk to Garrett. Maybe he can give you some pointers later. Hey, uh, speaking of later, you're going to have an opportunity in a little bit to participate in the love offering that I talked about last week and the orphanage that is uh, catering to and, and dealing with the refugee crisis of those leaving the Ukraine. There's so much ministry that's going on, whether it's still in the Ukraine or also on the border of Ukraine and Romania and our partnership through MANA. You're going to have an opportunity later to to give into that if that's what you feel compelled to do. And uh, so I'm hoping and believing that you've been praying about that this week and that you can respond in the way that God is stirring your heart. But I want to jump into or jump back into our series and in just a couple minutes, uh, we're going to get into Ezra 6. I invite you to go to Ezra 6 now, and we're going to look specifically at verse 13. And we're going to pick up the storyline where we left off last week. But while you're going to Ezra 6, verse 13, I want to tell you just a little story that I think sets up what's happening in this passage, but also it will set up maybe some things that God wants to stir in you and through you if you're going to be a catalyst of your own life and if you're going to go out and do the thing that God has equipped and stirred you to do. And the story has to do with a gentleman by the name of Glenn Cunningham. Not a lot of people probably heard of Glenn Cunningham. That is Glenn right there. So everybody said, hey, Glenn. Uh, he didn't hear you. He's dead. But anyway, uh, that's from the last century. But Glenn Cunningham is an interesting story, and he's an Olympic hero, but that's really not all of what we're going to talk about when it comes to Glenn Cunningham. Glenn Cunningham was, he was an, an Olympic star, and he was a collegiate star, and he was a high school star in the state of Indiana, but that's not really how Glenn's story began. When Glenn was just a young child, he and his brother were tasked to go put some fuel into the kerosene stove. Maybe some of you know about the kerosene stove like world. I don't. All I know is you change the thermostat and hope it does what you want it to do. That's all I know. But some of you maybe go back and you understand the stove days. Well, on this particular day, he was tasked, he and his brother were tasked with, with fueling the stove. And in doing so, he, the fire was already there, but they were stoking it up and doing whatever they do. And he... Uh, put some kerosene onto the fire, but yet when he put the kerosene onto the fire, it did what kerosene sometimes does, and it actually lit, and then it went all the way back and actually set him on fire and set his brother on fire. 
sadly, his brother lost his life because of what happened in Glenn. Uh, th- that story, uh, as a young child, it, was just, it would have been so traumatic for him because through that he suffered burns. Um, his lower extremities were burned incredibly bad. His right leg actually turned out to be two, almost three full inches shorter than his left leg. His toes on his left foot were, they had to be uh, amputated because of all the things that had happened. And he was told by doctors, again, this is in the 1900s, all the way back to the 1900s. He was told back then that, that he would, and his mother was told he'd probably never walk again. And in those, those moments, I can't imagine like getting that news as a parent, but Glenn didn't give up. And even as a young child of hearing that news, the only thing the doctor said was the only hope that he has for actually walking again is if you take his legs. I can't imagine how excruciatingly painful this would be, but literally to stretch his legs out, stretch them out. To, and I don't know what that would do. Maybe some of you are in, in the medical profession, you're like, yeah, that's what you do. Or some of you are scratching your head, you're like, I don't know where they got that from. Anyway, so it was a long time ago. But to stretch the legs out, and that was the only thing they could do, and they did that day after day after day. But Glenn was stuck in a wheelchair for months and months, and then one day his mother wheeled him outside onto the porch of their house in his wheelchair just to observe nature. His mother, I believe, went back into into their home, and he's sitting out on the porch. The mother looks outside and notices that, the, that he's out of the wheelchair. Glenn, in that moment, had gotten out of the wheelchair, and he had drug himself, again, because he could not walk, he had drug himself over to a fence and then pulled himself up. And his mother looks out, he sees, she sees, rather, that, that the wheelchair is empty, and all she can see is the drag mark from her son going to the fence. Can you even imagine? So he's at the, at the fence post, and he, he pulls himself up. And his mother sees that he pulls himself up, and she tries to talk him out of it and to get back into the wheelchair, and he says, no, he wants to try and walk. So he actually does this day after day after day, month after month after month. He goes, and he, he, he gets himself, and he positions himself up next to the fence, and he uses the fence for support until eventually his legs could strengthen him where he could stand on his own. And then he would walk along the fence even when he could only stand and he couldn't walk, and he would walk along the fence, and he'd walk along the fence until his legs were strong enough for him to walk. Again, doctors told him that he would never be able to walk. Fast forward a few years. Apparently with Glenn, he actually couldn't stand. Standing was incredibly hard for him, and it was excruciating, but he found that if he ran, the pain was relieved. So he did what Forrest Gump did. He was running, and he, he continued to run because it was easier than even standing or walking. So again, fast forward until when he's in high school. Just imagine the journey that his whole family had gone on the news that the doctor's had told them, but then when he's in high school and he actually set the record for the mile for high school runners. That was his story, and that's where he started, but he didn't, he didn't end there. He actually went on to, then three years later, after setting the high school record, then he set the collegiate record at the University of Kansas. And then just a few years after that, he set the national record, and then eventually he went to the Olympics and he won a silver medal. He continued to run competitively even after his professional life, and he got a doctor's degree in education and continued to run and to continue to run. And then he, he actually set the indoor mile 
record after that. It's an amazing story, is it not? To hear the overcoming nature and the perseverance and the endurance, everything that it would take for him to do what he did. But I want you to know this. Of, of looking into a book by Chuck Colson, a name some of you are familiar with perhaps, but into this book by Chuck Colson, he's actually telling the story of Glenn Cunningham and come to find out all throughout the, the running years, Glenn Cunningham never gave God glory for any of it, but yet he just glorified in his abilities. Fast forward some years in his life and Glenn Cunningham would surrender his life to Christ and actually the true calling for his life then would rise up and apparently it wasn't running as great as that was. He and his wife actually started a, a boys' home for troubled boys. And after his running career was over, then he actually found the true calling for his life of helping troubled teens, of which they were to help thousands upon thousands, largely funded by themselves. It's a compelling story, and sometimes we get... We get like all caught up in the beginning of the story as to, wow, this is just an incredible man and look what he did. And yet when he gave his life to Christ and the, the more that he grew in his relationship with God, the more a calling swelled up in him and then there was a shift in his life to where no more was it about personal accolades, it was about helping someone else. Did you know that's what God often does? And yet there are a lot of people who, who run their own race and they try and seek their own glory. And yet when God gets a hold of them, that God turns them around to no more is it about selfish endeavors. Instead, it's about serving endeavors. This is actually what happens in the life of Ezra, which we're going to read about in just a moment. The storyline with the people of God at the time was uh, originally the, the group was led to Jerusalem about 50,000 or so people uh, led by a gentleman by the name of Zerubbabel who wasn't really a spiritual leader. He was more of a community organizer. But God had given him a burden, this, this pit in his stomach. The only way that it would be resolved is if he stood up and he led the people back to Jerusalem into their place and not only to, the, to do that, but also to resume the worship that God had due. He faced some opposition. We've talked about this in the weeks in the past. He faced some opposition. And then where we left last week was the opposition was in front of them. We know that the work was stalled for 16 years. Eventually the work would pick up. And yet there were some people who were facing or who were who basically posing the work, opposing the work, excuse me, and they were going against them. And now they're saying, no, 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 you didn't do this. So now they wanted to go back to, a secu to, to basically the, the secular king and to verify the story that Zerubbabel had said. And this is where we're going to pick it up. In Ezra 6, verse 13. This is what happens after, they f after this, the work had been stopped, and now it's about to resume, but this is why. Then because of the decree of King Darius had sent, Tetanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates carried it, with diligence. So the elders of the Jews began to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai, the prophet, and, and Zechariah, the descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple according to the command of the, of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day in the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So the work is completed. It was stalled for 16 years, and the work was 
completed. You would think that this would just lead into a great storyline, that everything's going to be awesome, that now, hey, we're doing this, the worship is, is begun again, and now we have an altar, and now things are coming together. However, that's not what happened. The events that are, are separating chapter 6 and where we're going to be in chapter 7 are 60 years apart. If you're somebody who's read the Bible and, and you've maybe read the story of, of Queen Esther, her storyline actually is in the 60-year gap between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. It's in the same time frame. So they're stirred. The work begins. There is excitement. And now there's a, a lull, a spiritual lull. Did you know it's really easy to have a spiritual high and then follow by another spiritual low? Did you know that? Did you know that it's really easy to be on, on the mountaintop and, and to be sensing the power and presence of God and then somehow through the course of time in a short time to just go and then be in the pit right after that? Did you know that? And then did you know that God offers a way out of the pit even after we've just followed the mountaintop? Did you know that God loves you whether you're on the mountaintop or, is it, or you're in the pit? Did you know that? That's good news. God's love is the same no matter where you are, no matter who you are, or where you've been. And God, He meets you where you are, but He does not want you to stay there. God meets you where you are, but He doesn't want you to stay there. Because He knows if you stay there, you, you, that you will miss what it is that God has for you, and you'll get complacent, that your heart will grow cold, that you will be indifferent to the things of God. This is what happens in this 60-year gap. It's believed that Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, as however you want to pronounce that, it's probably wrong both ways. We try it both ways. <laughs> He's passed on. That generation has died. And now there's a new work that's to begin. And this is with a gentleman by the name of Ezra. Ezra 7, 1 through 10. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra son of Sariah, son of Azariah, excuse me, uh, and the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, and the son of Meriot, the son of Zerahah, the son of Uzi, and the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, and the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. And yes, I spent a long time this week working on those names. More than I care to admit. Keep reading verse 6. Talking about Ezra. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests and Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up from Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Verse 8. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to the teaching its, and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. 
Now we have another movement, a group not as large as the one with Zerubbabel. But now here's the second exile group that's being sent from Babylon with the, with the spiritual leader this time, and a gentleman by the name of Ezra. We know some other things happen. There's, there's actually a, a letter that goes back and forth, and then here's how it, it ends, in, or how this segment ends in Ezra 7, 27. Ezra says this, Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who's put it in the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good offer to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials, because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. I took courage, gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Again, what we see is something that I introduced last week is when you have a connection with God, it leads to a courage from God and also a conviction for God. This is another thing that you see in the life of Ezra. And now he's leading. We'll go back to verse 6 so we can not go through the, uh, those names again. Verse 6 says this. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. He was a teacher. He wasn't just a teacher. He was a brilliant-minded teacher. He, I, I think many times when we look into the Bible, we look at these people and we kind of gloss over the fact that they could have been, they could have been geniuses. They, could, they were brilliant. By him being a teacher, it, it wasn't just someone who would just stand and just read the Bible. He was somebody who knew the Bible. But even more important than that, he knew the God of the Bible. That he had a divine connection with God, and yet he was just living his life and doing what it is that God had told him to do until everything shifted and he left Babylon to come back to Jerusalem. What kind of man does this? What kind of woman does this? It's the man or woman who surrendered to God, and they do the thing that's unthinkable because it's God at work. But he came up out of Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. The word teacher is the, is the Hebrew word so fair, and it means this. It can mean, it's a, kind of a general word. It can mean recorder, scribe, secretary, or writer. But he's not just somebody who would just write things down, almost like a stenographer or a court reporter, or somebody who just took furious notes like they were good in college. They were the ones you would get the notes from. Instead, this, was the, this would be a person who knew the Bible so, so well. And that people could lean upon his knowledge of the Bible and the God of the Bible. That he would, he would know what it was and he would be able to teach people. That he was so well versed with the, with the Bible and the God of the Bible because he had spent time in it. You and I may never reach the place of being a genius. But we can also become well educated in the things of God and in the God of the Bible by getting into the Bible. This is, this is the pathway forward. If we're going to grow spiritually, it's to, it's to not just attend things that we should attend, but also it's in all the in-between times of getting into the Word of God. We know that Ezra was a man. He was well-versed. It means he was also skillful. He was skillful. He knew. He knew different types. Uh, excuse me. He knew about how to interpret the Bible and help people to understand the Bible. He had a brilliant mind. He was the, the perfect person to, to leave Babylon and to lead people spiritually 
to bring a revival in Jerusalem. Because this is actually what happened. There was a revival that swept through. It wasn't just a man leading a group. There was a spiritual revival that happened in their day. I think there's, there's some things that we certainly can see in the life of Ezra. And we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of his life and find some transferable attributes for us that would transfer to our life that we could become like Ezra, that we could become the men and women of God that he wants us to be. But I think there, there's also these thoughts out there. Ezra, he loved God. He just loved God. But Ezra also loved the city of Jerusalem. He loved his people. He loved his people. This wasn't about him. This was about God stirring him, doing a work in him. And as God did this work because of his deep connection with God, and then God stirred him to go into the city of Jerusalem because he loved the people of God, and he loved the city of Jerusalem. And then ultimately, if, you've, if you were to go to the right in your Bible, many books into Acts, you would see that, that Jerusalem would be a place of blessing for the nations. But it was his love of God and then love of city that ultimately would be a blessing for the nations. Why couldn't we be the same as a local church? Why couldn't we live for the glory of God? And because we live for the glory of God, we allow God and God's word to seep in us, to be in, just entrenched in God's word, that we can develop a love for our city and for our county and the knowing that, that, that through us that we also could be a blessing for the nations. Why couldn't we be these people? The way that we can become these people is by getting to know the God of the Bible and by getting into the Bible itself. I believe one of the social heroes in our country is Martin Luther King Jr. And he said this, Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Spiritually speaking, what matters to you? What matters to you? I want to share my heart with you about something that matters so deeply to me. And some of you haven't had the privilege of knowing this about me. What, one of the greatest struggles and battles that, that I have, and just what God has done in me, is I hate to see families suffer. I hate it. I, I, I just do. I hate it. I hate it as much as sin. I hate to see families suffer. I hate to see families suffer. I hate to see wives suffer. I hate to see kids suffer. I hate to see vulnerable people suffer. And I have found this. Most of the, the suffering that happens in a family is when a man is not doing what he's supposed to do. I believe firmly, just in a, as a, a friend of mine, a distant friend from Seattle, or right around the Seattle, Washington area, has said this. He says, when a man gets it, everybody wins. I'm passionate about you men taking up the, the, just the, the, the gall of leadership in your home and leading yourselves well. I believe firmly, and I cannot be deterred from believing this, is that when a man gets it, everybody wins. What bothers me is when a man doesn't lead himself and lead his wife and lead his kids well in a way that honors God. Because I know that if he does not lead well, everyone around him suffers. Consequently, when he does lead well, everybody else is lifted up. 
This is my heart. This is what God has done in me. This isn't how my life started, though. God brought me to the place for my connection with him. And now courage, because I, I myself was not somebody who had courage years ago. And now I, I can have the ability to stand on a stage. And, and I have a conviction, a deep conviction from God. You see, this is my... This is my vision. This is my preferred future, my personal thing. Is I want to see families do well, and I want to see men get it. And I want to see them walk with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What's your preferred future? What's your spiritual vision? What is the thing that is in the pit of your stomach that you wish that was gone from the world? What is the thing in the pit of your stomach that you just wish that people would understand it like you understand and that people would embrace the truth because you believe the world would be in a better place? What is it for you? If you have the Holy Spirit of God within you, please look at me. If you have the Holy Spirit of God within you, let me, know, let me just let you know, I'm not the only spiritual person in the room. God's got something for all of you too. And it's not for you to live your calling through my calling. It's for you to live your calling and for you to get to know the God of the Bible and for you to get into God's word, for him to reveal in you what it is that he wants you to do. We can all be caught in personal pursuits like Glenn Cunningham. We can get caught up in work pursuits and financial pursuits and all of these other life goals and we can just totally bypass God. But what if we chose a better route? What if we like... Like Ezra could find our calling. That it wasn't just about being a, a, a scribe or a teacher in Babylon, but yet the thing that he would be known the most about was the fact that he, he followed God, that he was curious about the things of God, and he obeyed God to go out back to Jerusalem, not to be a blessing for himself, but to be a blessing for other people. This is what God's people do. You see, your calling can take you places, but your character keeps you there. Your calling can take you places, but your character keeps you there. The word calling is not even really a spiritual word, as many of us have applied this word, a calling to be a spiritual word. The word calling is based off of, of the word voca, which is actually the base word of the word vocation. Vocation. So the word vocation, in many circles is used synonymously for calling. That it isn't just pastors and missionaries and deacons or people who are, are paid to do ministry who have a calling. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a calling. Amen. It's to surrender to God your life and, and your resources and your gifts and your talents and watch Him multiply what you thought you had to make it the most that you can possibly, uh, to make you the most you can possibly and to do what it is that God wants you to do. There's so many examples of this, that your calling can take you places, but your character keeps you there. We could look at Pete Rose, any baseball fans, we know this. He was an incredible baseball player, one of the best ever, one of the best hitters ever. He's not in the Hall of Fame because he had a character issue, not because he had a, a vocation issue. He was a great ball player. We could also go to uh, other things. We could go to uh, Mark McGuire, we could go to Sammy Sosa, we could go to, uh, to Barry Bonds, we could use an, the, the baseball thing and talk about the steroid uh, struggle that happened, right? Everybody loved baseball until the whole steroid thing blew up and now everybody's back like, not liking baseball anymore. Why? Because your calling can take you places, but your character keeps you there. And as soon as it became a character issue, people distanced themselves from that story. 
See, it's the same. God can, God can stir something in you. He can, he can take you to a place, but it's your character that's going to keep you there. The reason why, I believe, the reason why Ezra was, was in the place that he was in is because he knew God and he knew the God of the Bible. You see, your preferred future must be about as much about seeing change in you rather than just doing work through you. It's change in you. There's an a, a old Cherokee, non-biblical, but an old Cherokee story that relates to this. An old Cherokee uh, grandfather was talking to his grandson, and this is what he said. He explained it in this way. He said, a fight is going on inside of me, the grandfather says to the grandson. He says, this fight is going on inside of me. So just as a grandson would be so curious as to what the grandfather is talking about, the grandfather says to the, to the grandson, he says, it's a terrible fight, and it's between two wolves. The grandson's leaning in, and, and he says, one wolf is evil. He says, he has anger and envy and sorrow and regret and greed and arrogance and self-pity and guilt and resentment and inferiority and lies and false pride and superiority, and it's all filled with ego. But he said, but, but the other wolf is good. And he said, and, and it, is, it is joy and peace and love and hope and serenity and humility and kindness and benevolence and empathy and generosity and truth and compassion and faith. And the grandfather, the old Cherokee grandfather says to the, to the grandson, he says, and the same fight is going on inside of you, son, and inside of every person too. The grandson thought about it for a minute and he asked his grandfather, he says, well, which wolf will win? And the grandfather said to the grandson, the one you feed. The one you feed. We need to feed our spirit-filled calling and starve our sin nature. The author of Hebrews said it in this way. He says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out. For us, So we're to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And we are to run the race with perseverance, the one that God has for us. So we're leaving behind rejection and fear and doubt and insecurities and pride and selfishness and anger and slander and malice and greed and pride, the unhealthy kind. Leaving behind unbelief and unforgiveness. You may ask, well, Pastor, how can I do that? There's only one way to not be caught up in this. Because just as, being, as, as this is being visualized right now, if I move in any direction, I'm going to be entangled in something. The only way through is down. The only way to be free of all the sin that entangles us is to kneel before Almighty God and humble ourselves before God, trusting that He will lift us up. Thank you all. You can be done. The only way for us to run the race that God has for us, the only way, and not to be caught up in the sin that so easily entangles, is for us to humble ourselves before God. Humble ourselves before God's Word. You see the 60-year gap that happened in between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. 
It's really a curious thing. Because of this, the people of God had physically returned to Israel's land, but they had not spiritually returned to Israel's God. They had returned to the land, but they had not returned to God. Oh, this morning, who am I talking to? Who am I talking to that needs to return to God? Who just needs to put all of the facade aside and they just need to return to God? That in their seat, they need to confess that they're, that they're a sinner and they need to admit that, that they need a Savior and His name is Jesus Christ. Who am I talking to this morning? Who's the person in the room who's struggling right now and they're actually away from God and right now you feel like your skin is crawling and the Holy Spirit is pressing upon you to do something? Who am I talking to? We can be just like the people of God. We can, we can have all of the look on the outside. And they had, they had basically gone back to the land that was promised them, but their hearts were far from the God of the Bible. Oh, church, we can be in the exact same place. We can be so, so easily entangled in sin. And let me just tell you, let me give you some, some good news. You're not the exception. You and I are not that good. We all can be caught up in sin. But the way forward to run our race is, is one of humility, of kneeling before God, humbling ourselves before God, and admitting to God, I can't do it. I'm sick of doing this under my own power. I'm sick of living my life for me. I'm sick of, of chasing my own personal endeavor. And when we humble ourselves before God, our, our hearts are positioned well to be used by God. Who am I talking to this morning? Who am I talking to? Whose hearts are far from God right now? Whose heart needs a, a supercharge right now? Whose heart's on life support right now that you, that you know that you are a follower of Jesus, but you're not doing the thing that God wants you to do, and you've just given just a bunch of excuses as to why you're not doing the thing that God has pressed upon you to do? Who am I talking to? You may ask yourself, well, what made Ezra different? What made Ezra different was this, and if you have your sermon notes, you can fill these in. I'll go through them quickly. What made Ezra different was his faith. You're probably not as familiar with him as you are people like Moses and Joshua and Abraham and Ruth and Esther and Paul and other heroes of the faith. But, but let me tell you, leaving a place of safety, even if it's in Babylon, and going to an unknown land... Although wanting to go there and leading people, and people then are just like people now. Some people just do not want to be led. And anytime you take that kind of endeavor, you see one of the things that made him different was his faith. He just believed something about God and he believed that he was supposed to be a vessel of God. Also, his credibility, his credibility. The Jewish Talmud, it's some of the Jewish writings, it's just a collection of Orthodox Jewish writings, not our biblical writings, but if you were to go into those writings, they actually, they respect Ezra and they treat him as if he was the second Moses, the second Moses. So he had a credibility about his people because of his walk with God. Another thing we see is he had a hunger. He had a hunger. He had a hunger for, for God's word. Most Biblical scholars believe that Ezra not only wrote Nehemiah and Ezra, but he also wrote 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, and also Psalm 119, the longest 
psalm in the Bible, all 145 verses of it. This is actually an excerpt of Psalm 119, starting in verse 49. This is what Ezra wrote. Remember your promise to me. It is my only hope. Your promise revives me. It comforts me in all my troubles. The proud hold me in utter contempt, but I do not turn away from your instructions. I meditate on your age-old regulations. O Lord, they comfort me. I became furious with the wicked because they reject your instructions. Your decrees have been the theme of my songs wherever I have lived. I reflect at night on who you are, O Lord. Therefore, I obey your instructions. This is how I spend my life, obeying your commands. This is the type of man that he, that he was. Another thing that we see in the life of Ezra is he was a blessing chaser. He was a blessing chaser. You see, there's a few different times in this passage that it said something very similar to this. This is a quote from verse 9. It says, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. The gracious hand of his God was on him. And that's repeated a couple times. When it says in the scripture that the hand of his God was on him, that's just another way of saying he was blessed by God. He was blessed by God. He says this in Psalm 119, verse 57. It's just the next verse from what I read a minute ago. He says, Lord, you are mine. I promise to obey your words with all my heart. I want your blessings. Be merciful just as you promised is what he said. And I'm going to end with this. We're going to have a chance to respond, whether through generosity of giving our love offering or perhaps coming to the front if that's what needs to happen or something that needs to happen in the seats. But I'll, I'll close with the application for this morning. And it's so simple. But just because something's simple doesn't mean that it's easy. Amen? It says this in verse 10, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So the first thing that he devoted himself to was study. So if you're filling in blanks, the first one is this. Study it. Study God's word. When you study God's word, you study God's word. It may be on a Tuesday morning where you're doing devotionals and you study God's word. It's like when you put money into the bank that you're going to take a withdrawal later. Many times we, we, you may read something on a Tuesday morning and you may, you may wonder, okay, what's the big deal about this? And it's not until Friday afternoon that you're like, that's why God showed me that on Tuesday morning. When you, when you study God's word, it's like putting deposits in a bank, except the bank is your soul. So it's like making deposits. Another thing right here from this passage. Do it. So you study it and do it. Do what it is the Bible is telling you to do. What God is trying to tell you to do. It says this in verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study. So study God's word. And to the observance. Another way that you could explain. or That that you would explain the word observance. Because it's not a word we really use very much. It means obey. And to obey what God says is to do what God says. So study it. Do it. Do what it is that God says. Sure, we, we need to be people who, who study and reread the Bible. But we also need to know the God of the Bible. And also do what it is that God is telling us to do. I'll summarize. Do it in maybe a, a more inspiring way. Live the story you want written about in the world. 
live the story you want written about in the world. In a world filled with bad news and fake news and not knowing what we, what we can believe and seeing negativity, how about we choose the gospel route where we just live the story that we want written about in the world? So instead of waiting for somebody else to do something, instead we take, uh, we take our connection with God and allow that to well up some courage in us to do the thing that God wants us to do. And lastly, share it. Share it. Ezra devoted himself to the study of God's word, to the observance of God's word, and also sharing God's word, to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Because when you teach God's word, you're sharing it with other people. You're sharing it. You're sharing it. You see, the, the life of a, of a Christian is a one of generosity because we serve a generous God. It's because the God who, while we were dead in our sins, the God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus in willingness came to earth out of love for us, dying upon a cross, the most generous act ever performed on earth. Knowing that Jesus was God and that Jesus was also man. Jesus is God and Jesus was man. And what he did upon the cross because of his generous heart should spur our hearts to be generous. I invite you to stand. I'm going to give you an opportunity. Now I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to Lead us, and, and we're going to finish with some singing and perhaps a response, if that's what it is that the Lord is, is spurring you to do. But but let's be generous in this moment. Let's give a, a love offering to the people who are struggling on the other side of the world. And by by giving and pooling all of our resources together that we are going to give. Just a way of saying we're with you. We love you. And let's follow up with some prayer for these people. Saying I'm believing God with you that you're going to find a way out, that your family's going to find a way out, that one day you can rebuild. But the money that will, that will be collected, it will be pulled together, it will be sent to manna, and it will be specifically to those who are refugees, those who are struggling. There was an orphanage that is, is close to the Romanian border, and there's so much ministry that manna does right around that area of the Ukraine. But I know that we're not just going to be helping orphans, because every ministry like that in that area of, of the world is just being inundated and overwhelmed with, with refugees, millions upon millions. So anything that we can pull together is going to be a blessing for these people, these children, these families. Families just like ours who, who have hopes and dreams, they have a, a version of the future that they would love to lean into. Perhaps when we pull our money together, showing we love them, maybe what we can do is we can encourage some of them to keep moving forward and not to fall into despair. 
So let's pray together and then we will, we will give in the way that God is leading us to give. So let's pray. Father, we love you. We come to you in this place and we thank you, Lord Jesus, that, that you're so generous, that the Father is so generous, that the Spirit is so generous. And that because of your heart, you spur us to be generous. God, impress upon all of our hearts right now what it is that we're supposed to give. Of course, this is not a tithe. This is just a special offering. But God, in moments like this, we can't delay. If we know that there's a crisis and there's something we can do, we should do it. So Lord, whatever it is that you're, you're encouraging us to do, in this moment, God, just sear it into our minds and our hearts as to what it is we're supposed to do. We ask, God, that you would make the message clear and that your glory would be the renown of the money that goes off to that far off land. Amen. Well, church, I don't know if you're prepared in this moment, but there's one of three different ways that you can give. If you have the info card on there, it, it tells you in detail exactly how it is that you can give, whether it's through uh, the envelope system in the back of the room. You can also go to the church's website, and you can also use our text to give option as well. So right now, before we leave the room, if you feel inclined to give, I want you to give right now. Maybe you need to walk outside the room and go grab an envelope. Go do so. We're not passing the plates, but you can do that right now in this moment. Perhaps you already have. I'm not really sure. But you have the freedom to walk around the room. If, you, if you're not prepared to give and you have it in your heart to give, you can do that now. And give by giving, again, one of three ways. The text to give, which we're doing right now, or online through your phone, your device, or through the offerings in the back. We have some people taking care of that in the back of the room right now. What is it that God is stirring you to do? How is it that you're supposed to step up and help these people in need? Do so right now.